do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may be able to prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Romans 12:2. This is Resistance and Reformation on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Andrew Nelson Lytle was just 28 years old when he joined an extraordinary group of Southern historians, poets, political scientists, novelists, and journalists publishing a prophetic collection of essays warning against the looming loss of the original vision of American life, a vision of both liberty and virtue. The symposium, entitled I'll Take My Stand, poignantly voiced the complex intellectual, emotional, and spiritual consternation of men standing on the precipice of a catastrophic cultural change. Lytle was still a graduate student at Vanderbilt University in 1930, but already he was recognized by the literary luminaries that made up that group, such notables as Robert Penn Warren, Donald Davidson, Alan Tate, Stark Young, and John Crow Ransom, as a brilliant writer and a wise exponent of their philosophy of chivalry, stability, and agrarian virtue. The agrarians, as the group came to be called, were alarmed by what they perceived to be a steady erosion of public virtue in American life. They feared that, as was the case in the 18th century, our liberties were facing a fearsome challenge from the almost omnipresent and omnipotent forces of monolithic government. They were determined to warn against the creeping dehumanization of an ideological secularism that they believed was already beginning to dominate American life. There is evidently a kind of thinking that rejoices in setting up a social objective which has no relation to the individual, Lytle wrote. Men are prepared to sacrifice their private dignity and happiness to an abstract social ideal and, without asking whether the social ideal produces the welfare of any individual man whatsoever. Lytle, like the other agrarians, was the product of the post-Reconstruction era in the South. It was a difficult time, in a difficult place. The virtues of Southern gentility, though sorely tested since the time of the war between the states and its horrendous aftermath, was still very much in evidence. Despite the region's captivity to the economic and cultural dominance of the larger nation, the old precepts survived. Indeed, in some quarters, such as the classical academic environment of Vanderbilt's campus, uh, they actually thrived. He was born in 1902 
into a family with deep roots in both the soil and the society of the Old South. He was reared on a rich diet of family closeness, hard work in the fields, community cohesiveness, deep piety, and a legacy of storytelling that would ever afterward shape his vision of the good life. He loved the culture of the South for all its genuineness, its traditionalism, and its humaneness. The agrarians were old-school conservatives in the tradition of Americans like Fisher Ames, John Randolph, and John Calhoun, but they also drew on the rich European conservative tradition of men like Edmund Burke, Robert Southey, and Thomas Macaulay. As Louis Rubin later commented, they were writing squarely out of an old American tradition, one that we find embedded in American thought almost from the earliest days. The tradition was that of the pastoral. They were invoking the humane virtues of a simpler, more elemental, more non-acquisitive existence as a needed rebuke to the acquisitive, essentially materialistic compulsions of a society that, from the outset, was very much engaged in seeking wealth, power, and plenty on a continent whose prolific natural resources and vast acres of usable land, forests, and rivers were there for the taking. But, of course, uh, Lytle knew full well that he, his agrarian cohorts, and all the other advocates of that residual southern civilization were essentially standing against the rising tide of industrial, and ideological modernity. Though I'll Take My Stand caused a stir when it was first released, very few critics gave it much chance of actually affecting the course of events. It was assumed that the wheels of progress could not be redirected, and for most of the rest of the 20th century, it looked as if the critics were absolutely right. The agrarian commitment to the old standards of chivalry seemed to be a hopelessly lost cause. Mention chivalry today, and most of us are apt to think of knights in shining armor, damsels in distress, crusaders embarking on a great challenge, or pilgrims intent on a great quest. It is a rather romantic notion that brings Uh, to mind Arthur and his round table, Ivanhoe and his lost honor, Guinevere and her threatened virtue, and Rapunzel and her dire straits. It evokes images of the long ago and far away. It is, for us, rather passé. It is a positively medieval concept, a long-forgotten relic of a sentimental past. But chivalry is a code of honorable conduct that need not necessarily be tied to any particular time or place or cultural context. 
As wise men and women throughout all time have known, it is a standard of virtuous behavior that has inspired great men and women through all ages, causing them to long for a kinder, gentler society that abides by the conditions of genuine civilization. As Lytle declared, both the liberals and the conservatives have lost definition. Neither one can make us know what a tradition might. Short-term pessimists, but long-term optimists, they believed that essentially a grassroots movement would restore the principles of the rule of law and the American dream could well be preserved for future generations Though they, the agrarians, were not economists or sociologists or activists, their vision was a comprehensive blueprint for a genuinely principle-based conservative renewal. The funeral sermon for the chivalry of Christendom and the Old South has been preached so many times that most people probably thought that it really was going to be entoured, but it seems recent turns of events have vindicated the agrarians' hope that an emphasis on less government, lower taxes, family values, minimal regulation, and localism may yet be, surely ought to be, revived. Their innate distrust of professional experts in politics, media, and academia have begun to be resurrected into a popular mega-trend in a grassroots reaction against the woke fundamentalism that has imposed a stifling madness on modern American culture. Lytle and the agrarians very clearly lived in a time where they would not see the genesis of this hopeful about-face. Lytle's long career as a gentleman farmer, novelist, essayist, university professor, and writing mentor earned him a tenured place among Southern Belletre. His log cabin on Mont Eagle in Tennessee became a gathering place for a kind of cultural expatriate movement. His chivalrous demeanor and his venerable mane became for generations of young Southern writers the very embodiment of the social and spiritual ideal. At his death in 1995, he was lauded as a prophet, not of a way of life now long gone, but of a hope merely deferred. He was a herald of a much-needed new day of both resistance and reformation. I'm George Grant on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. For more information and for resources, go to georgegrant.net.